You ever feel the need to reboot your life, reboot your business? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today with Mitch Joel, author of Control Alt Delete. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jantz, and my guest today, another repeat guest. Uh, I'm on a I'm on a roll on those. Mitch Joel, president of Twist Image and the author of Six Pixels of Separation. And a new book that we're going to talk about today, uh, there's probably got to be a great way to uh, pronounce this all as one word, but Control-Alt-Delete. Reboot, yeah, reboot, sounds great. <laughs> reboot your life. Your future depends upon it. So thanks for joining me, Mitch. John, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. So what book have you written for all the Mac people that have absolutely no idea what Control-Alt-Delete means? I'm a Mac guy, and I just thought Command-Option-Escape doesn't sound good. <laughs> <laughs> but but universally known as the, the sometimes untidy way to restart and reboot your computer. You know, yeah, or, or your business in my case. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so in fact, the book is in two parts. Um, you, uh, in fact, the subtitle addresses, you know, reboot your life. So you're, you're talking about rebooting a business, and then the second half goes into uh, re rebooting your life. Um, so we can, we can break that down. I, I will tell you one of the things that I really enjoy about this book is that there just seems to be a lot of energy in it. And I don't know if that's just the way you wrote this one or just uh, maybe it's because I really uh, – um, relate to the topic you know it, um that's it's interesting so that's sort of new feedback to me um i think that when you're sort of working on something and you're not sort of talking about the things you necessarily have known and done which was sort of what i was doing in six pixels of separation i was trying to explain to the world that there's a different way to grow your business now and to do marketing and communications and in control alt delete it was more like i was discovering these things and for me the things were divided up like you said it's sort of the first part of the books about business but it's really about these five movements that i have uncovered and how they've changed business forever. And the second part of the book was about these sort of triggers you need as an individual to be active in the environment. And I think that when I was putting it together, the energy you're probably feeling is me on this sort of journey of discovery versus me regurgitating what I think I know about business. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think there, there are, pl there's plenty of sort of, um, you know, self, uh, actualization going on almost in the book where, where I find the times where you were, it was almost like you were saying, Oh yeah, I'm doing that. Um, and you know, here's why that's a bad thing. Yeah, to, to, totally was a bit a bit of that experience yeah. too, for sure. Yeah. So you uh, describe this um, this place that doesn't sound very nice. This constant state of purgatory uh, right. that, that that you find us in. So and 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 that's your I, I think that's your basis for why we need to reset. So you want to. You want to set that uh, the set the stage then for why we need to reboot? Well, it was an interesting thing. I mean, you sort of know me personally. So as I grow my agency, part of what I do to grow the agency is I run it all over the world talking about how much digital has disrupted business and the innovations that come along with it. And if I would sit candidly with people, the feeling was always the same. They would sort of tell me very senior marketing professionals or, or, or brand or business development people would tell me, you know, we feel like we're in hell. Like the stuff that we sort of really new isn't as change. I mean, and the, and, the, and the change is something that we're not comfortable with or, or know. And I was thinking about that idea of like hell and like, is it true hell? And I realized, you know, hell, at least from my perspective, hell was when I would sit across from a senior brand person and they would say to me, tell me why I need a website. And the reason they had that question is because they didn't know, nor could I validate whether or not the web was a fad or not back then. 
we now know it to be a, a, a sort of cataclysmic change in how we're, we connect and do things and on and on and on. If you sort of fast forward to where we're at today, and I know you experienced too, John, where people say to me, tell me why I need social or tell me why I need mobile or tell me why I need local and all those things. What we do know about that is that they are fundamentally truths. They're truths. They're, they've happened. So you can't say like is social media a fad, is mobile a fad, is local a fad. Is it, it's not. These are realities. And yet we are still acting much in the same way we were back in the day as if it were a fad. And that to me was purgatory. It's this idea that you know unequivocally that the world has so fundamentally changed and those are the five movements and yet you're really not moving your business in that direction. And so it became this book about identifying these five things and helping you pull yourself out of it. You know, I wonder, um, as I read the book, I mean, you, you talk about how, you know, this is, a, this is an incredible moment in history, you know, where, where we're having this, this change, you know, that's going on that is, you know, bigger than, than – last decade last decade or the last decade and i wonder if every i wonder if every generation kind of thinks that about what's going on you know in their life as they are aging and as they are starting to say look at this new stuff come along or do you think that we are at like an age that someday school children are going to be reading about like they do the industrial revolution yeah i think it's the latter i i i mean i'm i'm sort of going back on on you know what i know so we're, we're talking about the mid-80s to now in terms of time frame of work and then peers of mine who've been in business longer than that. And if you really sort of sit down and say cataclysmic, like dramatic changes, you've changes and shifts in technology evolution. But this sort of exponential tick that we've taken now with technology and business and marketing – I, I don't know that we've ever seen this. Like, I don't really know if you spoke to, in my world, it's really marketing professionals, but if you sat down and said to them, at what point in our lives have we ever had this much disruption and with the disruption, the opportunity, I don't know that we've had that before. I think that, sure, TV was different than radio, but essentially the ways in which you engaged with it as a marketing professional in particular was very similar. You, know, you were sort of buying it the same way or dealing with it the same way. It was new and interesting, but it wasn't as different as it is now. I, don't, I can't really recall another moment in human history where you could have an individual working out of their apartment with a laptop and a connection build a multi-million dollar business with nothing else. Yeah, and and I think we also have you know I don't know what what what's the exact age, but fifteen, sixteen year olds down that have you know, consumed every bit of information and and data you know through this one pipe that you talk about. Yeah, and if you just think about the fact that you know one of my big epiphanies was watching my 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 young family and realized that you know my kids aren't going to really grow up in a world with a keyboard and a mouse as we've known it, and then you sort of take that to uh, not even an extreme but a reality. And the odds are, John, you and I won't probably be working in a world like that yeah. because the shift has been so exponentially massive. Well, I've only got about five good years left in me. <laughs> right, exactly. so, so maybe not you, John. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's talk about some of these uh, shifts or movements. Uh, the, the first one um, is a shift to direct relationships. And, and, and obviously, you know, social media plays a big part in that, but maybe not the part that people think when they're out there tweeting. Yeah, so I mean, I realized in sort of calling the first one direct relationships that people would go, come on, like business has always been about direct relationships. And that's not what I mean. Of course, you are constantly as a business trying to capture the direct relationship from your competitor. The direct relationship challenge that I think few people have embraced is the idea that suddenly it's not just about your competitor, but it's about your business partners too. And, and an example would be, you know, you go out and you buy uh, an iPhone. 
and you buy your iPhone, not at an Apple store, but you buy it at whatever, a Best Buy, let's call it. And you like all of them on Facebook. You like iPhone on Facebook. You like Apple on Facebook. You like Best Buy on Facebook. I mean, you start sort of seeing like a very confusing marketing message to consumer landscape where we didn't really have that before. Like you didn't really sort of jockey for that direct relationship. And if you look at it even from a B2B level, you see so many B2B businesses and their value-added resellers all vying for that same attention. They're all vying for that direct relationship. And the point I try and make in the book is that when everybody's vying for it, everybody in your business food chain and your competitors, you have to get it. You really have to capture it because if you don't, someone else will. And at the end of the day, I do think that the future of commerce is going to be implicitly driven by which brand has the direct relationship with the customer. So in in a way, I mean, if if we're going to go step back a little bit, I mean, you could talk about distribution um, in in that same manner, right? It used to be chains of distribution and and wholesalers. And, you know, there were all these sort of middlemen, I guess people called it, uh, before the product in many cases uh, got out to the end user. And I think a lot of, you know, a a lot of this direct approach uh, is actually directly speaking to the end user. And even if that, again, maybe it's not, maybe you still ship the product a different way or or sell the product a different way, but but you're actually, your message and your connection uh, uh, skips all those channels. Yeah, and, and you know, typically, you know, you bought something and you weren't pleased with it. You brought it back to the store. You didn't really, or if you emailed the brand, you were really upset, and you an email. You wrote a physical letter email. <laughs> so new that technology. You'd write a physical letter to to the store to the brand. Maybe you would hear back from them, but they didn't even have the infrastructure to deal with it. Now suddenly, when you look at sort of what's hot now, whether it's community management or Facebook pages or having a Twitter feed, all of those things are are brands now adapting to the direct relationship. If you look at the work of some of our peers, whether it's you know the Charlene Leaves of the world and building these social businesses or Nilifer Merchant who talks about it in the framework of the social era, it, it's fascinating because businesses were never built to really directly interface with customers. They were built to interface with the, their retail, their, their distribution channel. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and you make uh, one of my uh, one of the assertions you make, of course, and because a lot of times people need, I think when people talk about reasons for you know joining a movement, I, I think a lot of times they need uh, they need to make it a priority. And the way you make it a priority is you you talk about benefits <laughs> to them. And one yeah. of the the benefits you talk about that really rang true with me is that that this direct relationships minimize risk. Yeah, you know, obviously, when you have a world where you can really engage and directly affect the relationship, there's ramifications to that that I think are really, really positive. I think the challenge that we've had, it's sort of like the growing pains we're going through now is just companies really haven't done it. So they're sort of learning as they go. The other interesting part about it is there's no social contract. So there's like this massive you know, BP oil spill that happens and everybody hops on Twitter and is like, you know, I, I hate BP or death to oil companies and all this sort of stuff. BP traditionally interfaced with the media they held a press conference and there was a there was a decorum whether it was whether it was whether it was angry or not the decorum was you know journalists sit in the audience bp executives sit on a table they film it everybody has their turn to ask questions they've been pr'd both sides have been pr'd to like how to best say it 
it's not like someone's randomly standing up and going, you suck, now respond. Like That doesn't happen in those environments. There's a social contract. But on Twitter, on Facebook, on YouTube, those happen. And so brands' abilities to react effectively to this, which is something we talk about all the time, I sort of I, – I give them a lot more, more leniency because they're not structured to respond that way. They're structured to press releases and, and media phone calls and journalists calling back and acting, asking things in a nice way, understanding that there's a production cycle of news. You know, like all these things that real time and Twitter don't afford you. And so suddenly it looks like they're scrambling. It looks like they suck when in reality they don't. They just – they were never organized for that type of response. You know, as I listen to you tell that story, you know, I, I think they've really grown though, haven't they? I mean I, – It's I, gotten I, really good. Yeah. I mean I think they they survived sort of that storm and, and you see a lot of really, uh, you know, I think positive things out of them. Well, I would push it even forward, John, and I would say you've seen the actual – push through that purgatory into the promised land when you look at things like what Oreo is doing with the Super Bowl. Suddenly, they're proactively leveraging moments in real time to place the brand in a positive way and to change the brand narrative. That's profound. I mean, that's a real profound shift in brands. Uh, We saw this also uh, with Isaiah Mustafa and Old Spice and YouTube. As you know, people are like, oh, it's amazing that he's responding to videos. Now, that's not what's amazing. What's amazing is the proactiveness of of using the media instead of how they had to do it to just respond to crisis. Yeah, well, they're they're. Um, I want to I want to talk more about this. Um, you know why people aren't doing it. Um, uh, but I I, I have a, a line from the book I want to make sure that I share uh, because it was one of my favorites and and I I wrote it down and so I'm, I might get it a little bit wrong. But uh, instead of asking people to like you, why not try liking them first? I love that. Yeah. You know, it, it was one of those things where, I mean, you get this every day where people are like, how many likes do we have on Facebook and how many likes? And, you know, I, I understand that a fan page can't like an individual. So people are like, but you can't like your fans. It wasn't my, it was, it was a sort of, I was trying to just tell a story. And my point was, is that what we are doing is we're telling people to like our brand so that we can shove stuff down their throats right. instead of saying, what can we do on Facebook that creates value, utility, and adds to that consumers experience so that they'd let you into the very sacred circle you know the average consumer on fa- the average user on facebook has 200 connections i think if you're under 16 it's closer to 500 but you get the point that's a pretty close-knit circle and for a brand to penetrate into that you have to really be doing something other than saying you know like this if you like thursday yeah well and i believe me i totally got it that's why i found it so amusing um <laughs> Another movement, utility. Um, but by the way, John, it would be nice if Facebook pages allowed you to like your consumers. Yeah. All it right. would be great. I mean, you talk about a, a real two-way, you could really have something there. Could could Facebook sell that, though? That's the problem. That's, yeah. that's why we may never see it. Um, utility. Um, I, I think that um, you, I, I, this, you're not the only person talking about this right now. This seems to be you know a really hot topic. And it you know it's funny because it... Seems so obvious, right? But uh, I was actually talking to a, a client uh, yesterday that is putting out an app, or wants to put out an app, and wants to want to talk to me about their marketing plan for their app. And I said, you know, it has to entertain, it has to be extremely useful, or it has to extend some behavior I'm already doing. And if if you can't do that, why do I need your app? And and I think that that's you know to me that that when I read your chapter on utility, uh, that that story sort of rang true. Yeah, and for me, utility was about going even beyond just this sort of 
appiness of it. I think apps are like the gateway drug to utility. My point was really more like if a brand wanted to connect with the consumer prior to all these amazing things we have, you really had the gatekeepers, which was media. And it was primarily advertising that you could drive a message through to. But in a world where you can create anything in text, images, audio, and video, where you can create a program, an actual product, and I do think apps and things like that could be physical products as well, it amazes me that we take that opportunity and go, you know what, let's put our coupons in there. You know what, let's just tell people when we're open or how to get to us. It's like the narcissistic view of that advertising served so well is the complete antichrist <laughs> to like this world of what you could really do. And, and while I think you're right that some people are talking about it, I'm not sure people are really – describing it in, in, at the layer of which I'm saying, which is it's one thing to say, you know, be, make it something people would use. I'm taking a step further and saying, make it something that would be so valuable to somebody that they would keep it on the home screen of their smartphone. Mm. Because even if it has nothing to do with your product or service, but just aligns with your business, they will always remember it. And there are a couple of really powerful examples in the book and newer ones that, are, that, that really sort of speak to that. Well, and, and I think that we a lot of times limit this conversation to um, you know, a physical product or something. But I, but I think you're saying your marketing, your messages need to be useful as well, right? Yeah, and I would take it even to the nth degree and say that if you do it well, people will pay for it. I mean, that's the world we live in now. That's the sort of control all delete reboot world. You live in a world where if you do it well, people will pay you for it. People will actually buy it for a dollar in an iTunes store. People would actually want to engage with it and feel like it's a part of what makes their life easier and better. That's profound. Um, talk a little bit about this concept of active media. Um, <laughs> my uh, one of my daughters actually works for Nielsen, and you know they test all kinds of ad units. and And they said one of the the, the hottest things, and I know you you play around with this stuff too, but one of the hottest things going now is, is the ability for somebody to actually choose the ad they want to watch, um, related to you know some other call to action. And, and you know, I, is that what we're talking about? Is active uh, media? Not really. Well, it, it's sort of the reason why we have active media. So here's where I was going with active and passive media. It was the idea that when when social became very much a part of who we are, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, all those things, you have to think about like it's sort of like the lean in versus lean back model. Like you got to really lean into Facebook. Sure, you can sit back and just watch what you know Justin Bieber is posting or whatever. But the real value is when you create something and you do something there. And and why this is important is because I was sort of thinking about the constructs of TV and how TV is going to be very interactive and it's going to be like an iPad and Apple has a TV coming and you go on and on and you go, wait a second. I don't know about you, but at the end of the evening, it's like 10, 15 at night. I just want to close the lid and watch some Charlie Rose, right? I don't want to plus one, like, friend. I don't want to chat. I don't want to blog about it. I just want to consume media. And, uh, you know, in doing that, you sort of realize that I'm not always the person who wants to be creating, sharing, doing. Sometimes I just want to read an article in a magazine or in the newspaper or even on a screen, whatever it might be. And that my engagement as a consumer at that point is very passive. And you have to be careful in creating advertising for, that's active in a passive mm -hmm. channel. You have to be careful creating passive media in an active channel. I think newspapers online are a great example of that. It's a very passive experience. I'm going to sit back and read an article, not on physical paper, but on a glaring screen. And you want me to click on all these punchy banner ads and stuff when, you know, I just want to read. 
I don't necessarily want to highlight, share, talk, tweet, you know, all those sorts of things. And so when you look at things like, you know, the advertising revenue of the U.S., including online and seeing how pitiful that number is compared to, let's say, Google advertising, where the, the actual format of the advertising fits the experience, it's contextual, all that sort of stuff, you see the dramatic difference. I mean, newspaper advertising, $70 billion dissipated from 2009 to 2012. That includes online. So online didn't even move the needle that much or change the needle that much. You turn that around and see that Google advertising generates more advertising revenue just in Google than the entire print industry. And why? I do believe that part of it is this active versus passive model, that the advertising fits the experience, Mm -hmm. that the content fits, fits the experience. And that that's why you have the challenge of the other. Now, it's not a zero-sum game. The other important factor here is you need the balance. You need to know when consumers are active with media, when are they passive? Is your advertising active or passive at that moment? What's the balance? Consumers need the balance. Well, and of course, you know, one of the advantages to a site like Google is that they, they do have the ability to, you know, it's not a network. I mean, they have the ability to personalize, you know, for every single viewer. And I think that... I think television is headed in that direction, isn't it? Or it needs to be? Well, yeah. I mean, I I think that there's something around the programming aspect, the choice and the selection for sure that we're seeing and the interactivity of how you see things and move things. There's no doubt. And there's no doubt that TV in a bid to maintain its advertising and its revenue, it's going to have to look more and more like the, the things that we have that allow us to do that, namely your iTunes and Netflix of the world. There's no doubt. I just think that you know, if you look at even the social web from, from text where we are now, you think about blogging and then RSS feeds and now sort of social discovery and curation because of platforms like Twitter and Facebook, you can see TV heading down that same trajectory. We're going to hit the point where we're at now with text online mm-hmm. with TV really soon where at some point someone's going to say, great. You know, a million channels and everything on, but I don't. I need this curated. Like I sort of like to know, like what's better in late night or or sports live viewing versus everything being recorded and streamed whenever you want. I think that there's still a very valuable commodity to be found in curation for people who just want to consume. You know, it's going to be interesting. The the, the next remotes are are certainly going to be you know a Nexus Seven. Um, Will, will become, I believe, will become the remote, you know, for, well, it is going to be the remote in Kansas City for Google Fiber uh, television when it kicks off. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that changes or, or what role that ends up playing because you've now got, you know, a web browser as part of the TV and you, know, you, you have the ability to maybe have all of that interaction and curation going on at the same time. Yeah, and again, it's, it's the it's the active part that we really have to focus on. So, like, I'm really hot and bullish on YouTube and TrueView. You know, the fact that it says skip this ad in three seconds and you click that, suddenly the advertisers told your ad sucked, nobody wanted to see it. Uh, they don't get charged, but as the system will roll and roll and get better and better, more and more times we'll hopefully not hit that button because the ad is interesting to us and we like it or captures our attention or it's not just a TV ad that's being placed on YouTube, right? And you sort of think about it from that construct and you go, that's where it gets interesting. But this idea that all media has to be highly interactive and immersive, I'm still really doubtful of. So in all of my sort of excitedness about the web and digitalness and social media and all that, I still see my own habits and the habits of many people where sometimes they want to be active with media. And a lot of times they want to be passive. And let's not just forget the passive because everything should be like the Internet. Yeah, because I I do think that – you know, we're, we're getting to a point where, you know, this stuff's just exhausting, isn't it? 
Yeah, I mean, there's the exhaustion factor, but there's just the there's just also the appetite structure. Like there is, you know, when I think about like why did I write a book? <laughs> so like, why, John, you ask this question daily, don't you? Why am I writing this book? <laughs> why do I? And and I believe the answer to the question is for people like you and I, because we are similar, is. There's a lot of things you can get from blogs, and there's a lot of stuff you can get from podcasting and my articles in the Harvard Business Review and Huffington Post and all that. There's great. But there comes a moment in time where if you want to deep dive, if you want to really think about something over a longer period of time in structure that was thought out, that was really that, that you know, that was really sort of thought of as a, as a beginning, middle, and end, there's nothing that beats a book. Yeah. And in that experience, too, you could add that with that experience of how you dive deep into it, is there an opportunity for it to be links and multimedia and video and audio? There might be. But again, when you talk about it being exhausting, I sort of feel like, wow, a book's already big enough. Like now i got to spend 20 minutes on the page because there's a 15-minute video interview. I'm like, I, I don't know if I got that type of you know, wherewithal to make the commitment. And so again, it comes back to just media appetite and consumer habits. But I'm very hopeful that we don't dismiss the power of passive media. I think there's something intrinsically magical about sitting back and letting something really suck you in that you can't always be on top of let me switch gears pretty dramatically um you know we've talked about uh, d you know direct relationships and we've talked a little bit about social networks um it, i've been asking people this question lately and i'd love to hear your take it, is the the profession of search engine optimization you know a viable standalone profession anymore that's a great question i i don't know and i say this fully Standing before you as a guy who owns a digital marketing shop with many, many employees. And I think being ranked within your Google, Bings, and Yahoo of the world are still very, very important. Search traffic is still significant. I just don't know if the role of optimizing for search should not be expanded into the social world as well. Right. So, like, how do you optimize when, when you and I are on Twitter and I'm saying, you know, do you know any good book editors or dry cleaner or whatever it might be? that there's a way for the people to really capture the 360-degree perspective of what the consumer is. And one of my movements in the book is this idea of sex with data. Oh, How do you, that was my uh, next question, darn it. Yeah, but, it, no, but it's, it's, it's tied into this, right? <laughs> yes, it's, it the, is. The search is that linear stuff. It's the yep. thing that is like, you know, you bought the search ad, Mitch clicked on it, information went back. But what if you could tie that search result to also what Mitch is doing on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and actually have more of a 360-degree perspective of who this consumer is and how to best interact with them where they might be in this cycle. And that becomes really profound and powerful. Some brands are already doing it. That's why it's a movement that's already happened, but we're not doing a lot about. But this idea of search engine optimization or search engine marketing, I still think obviously right now it's highly valuable. Just look at Google's search revenue and things like that and Yahoo and Bing and all those pull together. But I do think that it becomes more and more niche as search becomes more and more ubiquitous between our social graphs and also between computer interfaces for sure. Well, and, and, and I guess that's a little bit of where I was headed. Be, you know, do, does the role of a search engine in general play a, a diminishing you know, role in our lives? Because now, instead of you know, finding that great place to eat you know, by going out and searching online, do we go into Facebook and, and ask our friends? But search isn't one thing. You know, we have yeah. different search requirements and needs at yeah. different cycles in life and what they are. So the answer is you would go on Facebook and say, hey, uh, anyone have a good plumber? You know, absolutely. But if you just know that you need a new washer, 
you're going to just go online and Google for the nearest plumber in your neighborhood or what their opening hours are, whatever it might be. So search in and of it, it, itself isn't one thing. Like I'm actually in the middle right now of doing some a bit of research for a, a well-known e-commerce platform. And you sort of look at it and realize that, wow, there's not a lot of traffic that actually drives to real conversion from social in terms of, of actual dollars. But it makes perfect sense. It's not direct response. You know, search is really direct response. Email is really direct response. Search is a lot of things. It may be direct response, but it's harder to get there. It's not as direct, you know? Yeah. And so I, I, I'm very cautious when, when I hear things like that because I don't think that there's one type of search. Yeah. I don't search one way, that's for sure. Well, and it's interesting. I th- you know, there's a growing sort of uh, buzz about the fact that, that a lot of the search engines are trying to make the – are trying to personalize the experience based on your social graph, based on, you know, other things you've done. Um, and, and there seems to be a growing uh, appetite for people that just want raw search again. Yeah, and I'll tell you that one of the things I talk about in the book is that even the search engine optimization and the search engine marketing as we've known has changed because of personalization, meaning my search results are not your search results. Exactly, yeah. I mean, that's for sure the fact. I mean, forget the fact that we're in different countries, but we have different habits. You might be logged in. I might not be. But even if we both logged out and went to Google.com and did a search for something, we would see different results. And so I still think optimization is really important. I still think marketing on search engines is massively powerful. And there's no doubt you have to continue and be very vigilant with it, but understand that the, the dynamics at play are not the same as they were even you know a couple months ago. They they really are changing. You um, in in the unfortunately only brief time we have left. Um, I want to spend a little time in the second half. <laughs> Reboot <laughs> you. Um, and one of my favorites was was talking about uh, the idea for the the one of the movements is a need for a, a squiggly career. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I I've actually kind of done the same thing. Uh, for 25 years, so I'm not sure I've qualified, but but you've you've had a uh, you and I've talked about uh, your your background. You you've had a bit of a squiggly career, I think. Well, it's funny, you know, when you when I so the idea of squiggly career is the idea that um, I was having lunch with a friend, and she was in, in the same age as I am, and very unhappy where she was professionally, but very successful engineer and all that sort of good stuff. And we started talking. She's like, you know, when, I, when we were kids and we were in high school, I was sort of okay at math and science. And a guidance counselor said, why don't you try engineering? So, you know, college goes into engineering, goes through it, squeaks by, doesn't do amazing, does okay, gets the degree, gets the job, life is good, mortgage, kids, house, life happens. And, you know, you sort of realize like, oh, like I'm not that happy. And when I just sort of off the cuff said something like, isn't it amazing that like your entire life has been predicated off this random decision you made when you were like 17? And like her face hit the floor. It's like the blood had literally left her brain. And she was like, my God, like I made the worst decisions when I was 16. And yet my entire life has been predicated on that one decision that I made because I was sort of good at something. And then when I think about my career, your career, friends that I have, I'm like, wow, the people who are the most interesting, and I don't want to say successful because I think success you could sort of define, but the most interesting are the people who really explored and tried and moved. And so when you say, you know, Mitch, you've had an interesting uh, couple, couple of years, it's true. And I, in fact, when I look back, they're not even jobs. Like when I think about it, I didn't have – I actually changed careers multiple times, which is now very common. And we hear about this a lot when we see more research that young people coming out of university today will have six or seven not job changes but career changes. And what I see in my squiggliness is that I had them too. It just happened at a different time. Yeah. Um- you know, one of the things that uh, obviously, you know, it's it's really common to say, you know, the Internet has changed the way we work, right? 
but why has it really changed the way we work? <laughs> I mean, why do why do people still go to big giant offices and sit in cubicles and and you know so many people still working the same way uh, that that they you know was designed uh, for the industrial you know age? It's oh god! I mean, it's like talk about the most massive of questions. Uh, look, I think I think cycles like that take a long time to change and iterate. But why I think a question like that comes up is because we fundamentally know and believe that it should no longer be this way. Right. That's the most profound part. So the question's good, John, but it's what's behind the question that I find most interesting. Because you're right. I'll often sit at my desk, and I, you know, you, you're more working from home, so it's different. But I'll be in my physical office, going like. I could be sitting here answering emails or I could go play in the park with my kids and then answer them later. And there is no difference in terms of an hour or two that changes the world at all. And yet I still feel like if I leave, I'm letting people down. Right? It's like my feeling of like – and, and the, the answer is – and that really – I think that that thought is the foundational component of what the purgatory is. Knowing absolutely at our core that business has changed. It's not nine to five with a one-hour lunch. It's not this. It's not that. But yet we still sort of stick in it because it, it's what feels most – right yeah. even though it's probably not right i was talking to a friend uh, just yesterday or the day before and he said that they just moved to a new office and they completely redesigned their office and um you know they're pre it's about 20 person firm and they they previously had the cubicles and you know kind of the normal setup and he said this new office they moved into um has a couple corner big giant corner offices with big windows in them and what they did is they just turned those into, uh, he calls them playrooms. They basically just have benches and lots of places to set laptops up and no actual desks. And he said that that's, you know, the people that, that especially the younger folks that he's hiring, you know, they want to go hang out, you know, and do their work on their laptop sitting in, you know, chairs and, and on benches with the cool view uh, as opposed to having the, the senior VP, uh, you know, be in that office. You look, think about, I mean, it's funny because I wrote six pixels of separation in the book in 2008. It came out in 2009. I talk about there in many places where I think Cisco is one of them where you walk in, you swipe your card for security purposes, but you're then assigned your area based off of who you're collaborating with and what you're working on. Because like the, even the idea of like, well, where do I keep my files? It's right. like, what files? Like what, what, you know, where's my stapler? <laughs> like, why do you, why do you need, and, and you know, part of it had to do with, you're right, it's industrial and also the way technology worked where like, phone lines were attached to specific rooms. Now we know phone lines can be forwarded to anywhere, right? Like just basic things like that that we take for granted. And I say this sitting in a closed office with my books on the shelf and my posters on the wall and artwork. And I'm like, I all often say like, please, if you need this room, let it be a boardroom because it doesn't have to be that way. But look, what's the, what's the saying? Old habits die hard. Yeah, yeah, no, no, you're right. Well, Mitch, Great, great book. I think uh, I'm sure you're getting tre tremendous uh, feedback. I'm sure that there's going to be a whole bunch of people that want to hear you talk about these uh, topics, which you do so eloquently. And I certainly appreciate you uh, taking the time to stop by today. I'm the biggest fan of everything that you do, John, and you know that. I tell you that off the air, but I really, really am. And I can't tell you that of all of my friends that I have in the space that I've met through these spaces – I, I, I get most questions about you and duct tape marketing than anything else. Everyone loves what you do. So uh, thank well, you so much for doing what you do. Well, I appreciate it. I, I'm, I'm consistent, if nothing else. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs>